Romans eight twelve to 25 Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of your body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Indeed, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. But in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope that we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Sometimes I like to think about how the mindsets of people would have changed following all the big firsts that had to have happened throughout the history of humanity. After those eureka moments where we found out something huge, I like to think about how following those moments people would have felt and how they would have thought and how they would see the world differently as a result. For example, Alexander Fleming comes to mind, the doctor who invented the first antibiotic, and as such the man who is probably responsible for a fair amount of us listening to this being alive today. I come from a particularly infection-prone family, as my dad can tell you, as he once spent like near a month in a hospital after he was bit by a fish. Long story, not the only one of the kind he has, but... When it comes to Fleming, as the story goes, he left a bit of mold in a petri dish by accident, only to see that, lo and behold, the bacteria in that same dish was keeping its distance from the mold, and then bada bing, bada boom, half the deaths that happened in the world in a given year, suddenly they had a cure. Now from that, imagine if you were just an average Joe from the time of Fleming, how that would have changed everything about how you thought of the world. We are talking of literally billions of people who lived in a world where something as seemingly minor like stepping on a nail one day would have been a death sentence and the next day wouldn't have been. There is no way that that wouldn't have changed 
everything about how people thought of the world and their places in it. Or, I don't know, let's take another. For a solid amount of human history, there has been beliefs about mythical lands hiding out in the West just beyond the sunset. Think Atlantis for the most well-known example of this, of technologically advanced, morally superior, and most importantly, rich cities or civilizations just out of reach because of the Atlantic Ocean. Atlantis is probably the most famous, but there are actually a ton of these examples. It is such a common ancient belief that it is actually riffed on by quite a few things that you probably read. It isn't by coincidence that in Narnia, the realm of Aslan is in the west across the ocean, or that in Lord of the Rings, all the elves are sailing west to the Undying Lands. Both C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were men very well acquainted with all of these old myths, and they borrow from them regularly. So imagine how the average person would have thought of the world following this eureka moment where after years of sailing, Eric the Red finally makes it across the mighty Atlantic Ocean, expecting to find wealth and power and glory and beauty beyond what any man has ever experienced before, and what he is instead met with is Newfoundland. Imagine just how much the understanding of wonder in the unknown would have changed for the average person following that. It would have been too much to handle. No wonder the rest of Europe pretty much collectively forgot about Eric the Red and his voyage for the next 600 years. And of course here I am poking fun. I have not actually been to Newfoundland myself, but I am told that it is beautiful country out there. I have two good friends from there and uh, them and I have this thing where they poke fun of Manitoba and I poke fun of Newfoundland back while all of our other friends from Ontario and BC just kind of look at us puzzled. But the change in the thinking of the common man following these eureka moments in human history It's an interesting thing to think about, and, well, it just so happens that it leads us very nicely into today's passage. Because make no mistake about it, Romans 8, 12-25 is nothing short of just that, a eureka moment in human history. It is an idea that changes everything about how we understand the world, God, and who we are as Christians as well. You can see it most clearly in verses 22 to 24a, where it reads, We know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. And while everything Paul says there may seem too obvious to be a eureka moment on par with the other two that I mentioned, but bear with me, I'll explain myself. So let's explore just why I am sure that these short verses, as well as I suppose the others in scripture that say similar things, qualify as that big a deal. And so to do that, Probably it's best to start immediately before this passage where Paul spends some time talking about three different things. 
The first of these three things has to do with adoption. You can see it in verses 12 to 17 most clearly. In these verses, Paul first lets us know something that we have heard before a number of times in the book of Romans. That to follow the spirit means life, while to follow the flesh, or to say that in more everyday language, to follow the things that point away from God, that means death. This much we already know, but uh, then we find Paul ups the ante on us by letting us know that to follow the spirit, well, it also means something more. It means something bigger. To follow the Spirit, Paul tells us, is to follow God as he leads us towards something beyond just life. Toward adoption. This, Paul tells us, is ultimately what following the leading of the Spirit does. It makes us the adopted children of God, co-heirs with Jesus Christ himself. It makes us people who together with Jesus Christ are working to build God's legacy, working to build God's kingdom in the world, whose bodies will be redeemed as Christ was. How big is that? By choosing to simply believe what Christ has done for us, that he is who he says he is, the Son of God sent to show the world salvation, if he just believe that and follow Jesus, Paul tells us, God will adopt us. He will make us Jesus' siblings, his co-heirs. That is unbelievably huge. But strangely enough, it is not actually the biggest part of the amazing in this passage. It's not actually the eureka moment yet. Because from this, Paul goes on to talk about the second of the three things in this passage. What it means to live in suffering with Jesus as the siblings of Christ, as believers in Christ. And while this section may seem like Paul being the joy kill, as he often is wont to do, going from a high note of talking about how being adopted by God to immediately talking about how life is suffering... It is actually in this chunk where things start to really build. So bear with them. It's really worth it where he goes. Now, this section on what it means to join with Jesus in his suffering as his co-heirs that starts in verse 17. It is an idea of Paul's that is very much so misunderstood by Christians today, especially those of us who have had it relatively well in life. That's because often when this idea gets taught, it is explained as saying that the pain we join Jesus in is only pain that relates to our faith and the spreading of the gospel. So think persecution for your beliefs. That is what often this passage gets narrowed down to be purely referring to. And while that kind of pain is certainly included in what Paul is talking about in this passage, we know it is not the whole picture. We know this because immediately after verse 17, where Paul talks about how as co-heirs of Christ we must join him in his pain, he goes into talking about how all of creation is groaning over how things are not how they should be. You can see it in verse 20 very clearly. And in this groaning of all creation is where we all know a much wider idea of what suffering is exists. After all, the world 
is filled to the brim with war and famine and disease and uncertainty. It is all of these things, not just persecution for our beliefs that Paul is talking about when he tells us that we need to join Christ in his suffering. Because make no mistake, all of this is what causes the suffering of Christ. If you love someone and you see them suffer, it, it rips at you in the deepest part of who you are. If you have a child you love and who trips and breaks their lip, you hurt with them as they are crying. It's not just a token pain either. It is very much so real. This is the pain that Paul tells us here, that Christ, fully human and so suffering as we all do from living in our fallen world, but also who is fully God, the same God who created all, said it was good and who loved it immensely only to see it fall, is suffering with. And so this is the pain that we co-heirs with Christ are called to join him in struggling with as well. Pain in how far from how things should be, things actually are. And while in this, there are some very big implications that God suffers due to the state of his creation, that he loves, that is groaning in pain, and that we as his followers are to join him in that suffering and that in that glory will somehow be shown. While in that there is a lot of powerful things to take, there is something still coming that I kid you not is even bigger still. And we are almost there, I promise. We are 95% of the way to that big eureka moment of this passage now. But before we get to that big reveal, there is still one last thing to mention, and thankfully it is the shortest of the three by far. You can see it most clearly in verses 18 to 21, where Paul tells us that though the world is suffering now, we know there will come a day when through the work of God and his children, us included, through the work of all of us together uh, that suffer in the pain of our fallen home, we know there will come a day when this suffering will give way and because of that, things will be renewed. That is the third thing, that we as believers know in the end, God will set things right. That we know. And now let's bring this all together. Because finally, we are ready to talk about those focus verses that I read before, 22 to 24a. The verses where the Eureka lies. Before them, we heard about how we believers are adopted by God to be co-heirs of Christ. Then we heard about how Christ suffers for the state of the world and that we as his siblings are to join him in that suffering. And then we heard about how things may be fallen now, but we as believers of Christ know there will come a day when the sufferings will give way and God will make things right and how we will join him in that. This is what we have talked about so far. And through all of this, here is where we have arrived. In verses 22 to 24a, Paul tells us that as believers, we can live having experienced the first fruits of what God and us, his children, will one day do. 
We as believers know that God is good for his word, and because of that, we can live in the hope that the day when things will be redeemed will come. And here is where the big eureka moment can finally be found. For it is in that hope of what God will one day do, Paul tells us, that we can know that we are saved. Again, because we live in the hope found in knowing that God will set things right, we can know that we are saved. That is the eureka moment of this passage. Feel like it is too obvious in a statement to constitute a eureka moment on the scale of the other two, that since we know God can fix things, we can know that we are saved. Figure that is such an obvious statement that it couldn't have any bearing on anyone, let alone their thinking and their actions and their understanding of the world. Well, here's the thing about that. Though it may be a rather obvious statement to all Christians that we can know that we are saved because God said he would set things right. Don't downplay the impact of obvious statements. Because while we Christians suffer in this fallen world, do you know who else does as well? Literally everyone. But while we Christians have the comfort in knowing that God with us will set things to right, do you know who doesn't know if things are going to be fine in the end? Again, literally everyone else. Sure, there are people who do not know God and who see the suffering in the world and figure they should probably work to make it better. But those people, as noble and as honorable as they are, and they are both those things, they don't know if what they do will matter for anything in the end. How painful that uncertainty is. As Christians, though, Paul tells us, we know that the work done to redeem and right the world that God calls us to and joins us in will work out in the end. Think about how that certainty changes you, how you think and how you act as a result, the risks you take, the lengths you go to, how much it changes how you see the world. It may seem like a simple point, an obvious point to us Christians today that since God said he will save the world, we know he will. But the more you pull it apart, the more you see how much it changes everything about how we see everything. But it goes farther still. Here is a term that many of us have heard before, assurance of salvation. It is a term that means this is how you know that you are saved by Christ from the death brought by following the flesh that this passage talks about at its beginning. Assurance of salvation is the term for how you know that you are saved by God from eternal death. And this eureka moment from Paul, it it tackles assurance of salvation head on. Because in this passage, Paul tells us that in the hope of what God will do, we can know that we are saved. 
Again, verse 24. Or or to put it another way, uh, by simply believing that God is at work, something I suspect that everyone who is listening to this in their gut knows to be the truth, we can know that our salvation is assured. Again, that might seem too simple, too obvious, that that is all it takes to have assurance of our salvation. But again, it is the little things and the obvious things that change the most about the world. Because remember, do you know who doesn't have that assurance? Everyone else. This is how Paul knows in this knowledge there is assurance. Over the past few weeks, we learned that we can only know that God is at work because the Spirit is at work in us, guiding us. So that we know something as simple that Christ is working in the world today, we can only know that because the Spirit is first at work in us, pointing us to that truth. We can only know that things will work out because God has things under control because the Spirit was first at work in us to show us that truth. And so that we even hope that God will in the end set things to right shows us beyond a shadow of a doubt, Paul tells us, that our salvation is assured because we wouldn't know that or even have hope of that unless the Spirit was at work in us first. How big is that? How Do you think that changes how we think and how we act and how we understand our place in things apart from everyone else? Make no mistake about it. In this passage, there is a eureka moment second to none. And as a result of that, everything about how we think and act and understand about the world, it has been changed forever. As I said before, I love thinking about how the epiphanies that have changed the world also must have changed how the average Joe understands things. For some of these moments, I'll grant that the resulting change is likely more impressive than for others, but with this one, imagine how realizing this truth for the first time, this thing we largely take for granted today that it is now second nature to us, Imagine just how much it would have changed everything to those who first heard it. It is amazing.